What's up? So, end of 2020. This one probably be a long one, and it's for the people who know me, my audience. If you don't know me, you might find this one a bit uh, weird because you know you don't know me. But I wanted to just share all the main things that I've picked up from this year: the insights, the experiences, the hard lessons, and the failures. And just kind of wrap the year up with what it taught me about myself and also what I see in the broader social context, what everybody else could or maybe should gain from this year and learn from it. Because fuck, what a year, you know? What a year. What a ridiculous year. This is Brojo Online. Masculinity, confidence, and integrity. start by giving you guys a brief overview um so start of the year was actually pretty tough for us my mother-in-law had had a stroke the end of 2019 uh totally rocked our world and i'll just move this so my mother-in-law had just had a stroke at the end of 2019 serious stroke uh, you know, sort of irreparable damage done. And that just rocked our world. Uh, we had plans to go to New Zealand that needed to be pushed back. And it was just uh, it was just dark time for us. We followed that, you know, once the kind of main shock of that was over and the rehab was underway, then we finally did go to New Zealand. And shortly after arriving, Lucy got pregnant Oh, I should get pregnant. I got her pregnant. Um, we were trying to have a baby for like a week and she just got pregnant instantly. And then, you know, in the midst of morning sickness, well, all day sickness and everything, we came back to check after COVID hit because we're scared that we wouldn't be able to get out of the country. And our plan was to have the baby in the Czech Republic for lots of reasons. Um but uh, mostly for Lucy's comfort and it's really kind of socialist here. So you get lots of payments and stuff if you're, if you have a kid compared to New Zealand anyway. So we urgently came back here, got through the pregnancy here. And just a month ago at the time of this recording, little Chloe was born in the background of all of this. I was finishing up my latest book, the naked truth, putting a huge effort into getting that finished. It's taken me like three, maybe four years to finish writing that and uh, did most of the work this year. And to launch that about the same time as Chloe getting born, which was pretty, uh, pretty shitty time management, but it happened. And here we are next winter. So that's the download of kind of uh, the, the main logistics of this year. But I've just, I've just made a list of key things that came up that I've noticed that happened to me, that happened to others that I saw and my thoughts on that and hopefully a way that will help people maybe, or who knows, I'm not even trying, I'm just sharing now. So first of all, what's interesting, I think overall is how significant this year has been for people and how it's kind of universally being declared as a bad year and for a lot of people, the worst year of their life or should I say the most chaotic or uh, high impact year of their life. At least that's how it's kind of being broadcasted. It was just a crazy, crazy year. 
COVID was obviously center stage for that. But it seemed like a lot of things were going on around it or because of it that really rocked people. And statistically, this is backed up. You know, depression and suicide rates are through the roof this year. Um, lockdown's being blamed for that. The, because of COVID, the number of deaths in the United States is double what it usually was. And I'm sure that's pretty much the case for any other country that didn't handle the virus very well. You know, so a lot of people are losing their loved ones to this disease. And, you know, people are learning to socialize on Zoom, this whole new whole wave of children coming through without being able to see their friends face to face. Who knows what that's going to be like for their future? Kids who are basically socializing online permanently. They don't even have another option and so on. The way I view it is COVID really put philosophy to the test. It showed us who has a strong philosophy and who has yet to still work on one. Because I don't think anyone got away completely unaffected. There are people like myself who had it easier than others because we work from home already or we don't really give a fuck about socializing that much or something like that. You know, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm perfect for a COVID wave because it essentially did nothing to me. In fact, it gave me an excuse to chill out without an obligation to, to see people and stuff because I've, I've just got, I've needed a break from that for a while now. My business was unaffected. If anything, it's the best year my business has ever had. Uh, Lucy and I got to spend a lot of time together. Of course, as a new dad, actually, I need more time alone with my family. I don't need lots of events and pressure to do things. But I wasn't completely unaffected, you know. In fact, trying to get back from Czech Republic uh, to the Czech Republic from New Zealand was a mighty hassle and really stressful. Uh, we didn't think we were going to make it cost us a lot of money. We lost a lot of money on flights and stuff like that. Never seeing that again. You know, we got hit just not as hard as some, but we got a hit. And I think everybody got hit to some extent. At the very least, the social aspect of it, not being able to see people face to face, not being able to hug your family. There's some people whose family members died in hospital and you weren't able to, even able to visit. The strings we had to pull just to let me to be in the hospital when Chloe was born, you know, we had to really push hard for that. You know, some people got really, really done by this thing. But there were those who survived and those who suffered. And that is not about what COVID did to you physically. That's about philosophy. That's about your view of the world, your belief system, your confidence. I've got to tell you about this one afternoon shortly after the big lockdown in New Zealand. You know, the lockdowns are really strict there, which is what works, by the way for all the anti-science countries listening who are still getting ravaged by COVID. It was a big lockdown and there was only certain types of stores open, supermarkets, and in the area I was in, liquor stores were open because supermarkets didn't sell alcohol in that particular area. And I was driving to the supermarket for the first time since the lockdown, felt really weird being out and there was really strict rules. I had to go for my entire household, you know, and I saw this massive crowd, which was the last thing I was expecting to see, this huge crowd. I thought, was there a concert or something? I thought people are supposed to be like two meters away from each other. What the fuck? And I realized I wasn't seeing a crowd. I was seeing a queue for the liquor store. It was a Tuesday, about 2 p.m., Tuesday afternoon, and a queue the size of a concert outside my local alcohol shop. 
And I just looked at that and I just, that was just so symbolic. That is how a huge portion of the population is dealing with COVID. They're just going to get day drunk. That's how they're going to deal with it. And it was sad to see that. I was like, here's this opportunity where you're allowed to stay home. You don't have to waste time commuting. You don't have to go to an office where 80% of your day is wasted time. You can stay home. You can maximize your time. And that's how they're choosing to spend it. But I get it. 10 years ago, I would have been in that queue. But that for me was just symbolic. COVID has brought out what's really inside us. And that is we can't handle shit. Not sober. A huge proportion, huge portion of the human race is so uncomfortable being alone with their thoughts, being unable to be stimulated by external activity, to, to miss out on socializing that they can't hack it. And they'd rather get drunk than learn a new hobby or connect deeply with their family or get their body sorted out once and for all or something. So that liquor store, you know, I just, it just reminded me of the book 1984 and how all the party members just drink gin all the time to forget their woes, you know, instead of doing something meaningful. That's what it looked like to me. And I'm really, if, if you're one of the people in that queue, I'm not criticizing you, I'm challenging you. That's the best you could do with the opportunity to be home from work for months at a time. The best you could do was consume a carcinogenic poison to kind of stimulate yourself out of boredom. That's a real statement about your life. It's a real statement about how well your life's going. Not well is that statement. It's not a permanent state. I was there. I'm not special. I got out of it. You can too. But what I put out there is COVID has done us a favor in showing us where we're really at in life. If COVID was difficult for you, if the lockdowns were brutal, if you didn't know what to do with yourself, if it, you know, made the relationship with your partner and, and people you live with worse, if uh, you, your body got worse or whatever, if it kind of was negative experience for you, that's a wake up call. Because if you have your philosophy right, if you have your shit sorted, COVID could be an enjoyable experience, even if it was financially hardship for you. In fact, if you, if you lost your job and that was devastating for you, look, I feel for you, I have compassion. But there's a lesson there too. Why were you so dependent that you could be devastated? What kind of life would you need to set up so that that devastation couldn't happen again? From something as practical as multiple income streams or getting involved in working in a way that doesn't require you to travel and be in a building that you can do from home. Through to the more philosophical aspect, are you mentally fragile? Where losing a job or being uncertain about your finances wrecks you emotionally? Are you the kind of person that has resourcefulness, resilience, and goes, oh, well, I'll figure something out? Which one were you? How did you react if you're one of the ones who got, you know, your employment uh, significantly affected by this thing? Lessons to be learned there, because we're at the end of the year now, the vaccine's coming out, and as long as the anti-science crew don't put any major blocks on that, COVID should be a thing of the past within the next 12 months. Are you going to learn from it? 
or are you going to be still fragile for the next round? Because with a population of almost 8 billion people on the planet, there's going to be another thing. I don't know what that thing is. Nobody does. But COVID's just an, uh, it's a pre-appetizer for what happens when the population's too big and too closely packed. Right? There's going to be something else. Can you imagine if the internet died for some reason? There's some sort of power shortage and nobody had access to the internet. Could you survive that? Or if there was some other disease that went spreading around and killed people by the millions, could you survive that mentally, assuming you survived it physically? What if something, you know, like an AI breakthrough makes your job redundant? Are you going to be able to handle that? COVID showed you if you can handle shit like that. If you didn't handle COVID well, then you don't handle shit like that well. And that's a skill that you can build. You know, they sit there going, I hope nothing happens again. Or you go, fuck, something's definitely going to happen again. The, it's inevitable that something big like this is going to happen again. With a population this big, it's inevitable. With climate change escalating by the minute, it's inevitable that big things are going to happen. Are you psychologically, philosophically prepared for that? If you don't feel that you are, I recommend 2021 is dedicated to making sure that you are. It means reading about stoicism. It maybe means getting therapy and coaching. It means joining groups of people who are into self-development. It means taking courses. It means putting yourself through challenges and doing some Wim Hof breathing and ice exposure or training for an ultra marathon. It means getting yourself ready to handle shit. If you feel that you're fragile, then fix it because you can. I was fragile once and I'll fix that. And it's nothing special about me. I don't have some talent that nobody else has. I just found the tools that are available to all of us and I applied them and you can too. So that's my first kind of view of this year. I've got a list, like I said, and these are in no particular order. They just occurred to me. I'm tired from being a new dad, so I probably miss stuff and who knows what else is going on. But one of the other things was the anti-science movement. That's, it's amazing to me. It really kind of came home to me, the anti-science movement, when I saw people I know posting about conspiracy theories and so on and doubting scientists. You know, I first saw it with, um, there was the anti-vaxxer crew. That's when this anti-science thing first became kind of known to me. But nobody I knew personally was really on board with it. So I just kind of ignored it. I just thought it's like, a cult of like white soccer mums in the USA who forgot what hardship is like or something. But then what was it next? Well, there's, I mean, there was COVID and mask wearing and all that and people being anti-mask and people like deliberately going up to others and coughing in their face and stuff like that. Now, oh, climate change. That's what happened before COVID was, you know, there's there's almost nothing that's more scientifically solid than the conclusions that have been drawn about climate change. And yet I saw people that I had science classes with in high school. They were sitting next to me as I did physics or whatever, chemistry. And they don't believe in it. And I was like, we were there together learning the same stuff. Like we learned scientific method. We understood how scientists come to conclusions now fucking solid that process is how is it 20 years on 
you've lost faith in it. And I realized that's the question I need to be asking. This isn't like, I can't look at this anti-science crew and just go, they're a bunch of morons because I know some of them and they're not. There are some very intelligent people that for the most part I respect who are in that crew who you know, aren't wearing masks for COVID and won't take the vaccine and don't believe in climate change. <laughs> and I was like, well, how was it? What, what, what's happened in 20 years for someone to learn what I learned, which is this just undeniable rationality of scientific method to just go, it's pretty hard to come to the wrong result if you follow that strictly, which all these people for the most part have done. Well, I thought about it. Distrust. One of the things that um, Yuval Harari's book, um, was it Sapiens? I can't remember if it was Sapiens or Homo Deus that talks about the, uh, the link, the connection between science, um, politics, and capitalism. These things are all stuck together. You can't separate them. To, to give you an example of that, like every scientific study is funded, so there's capitalism, by someone with a vested interest, that's politics. So it's almost, you, you don't have pure scientific studies. You don't have studies where someone's like, we just need to know the answer to this because no one pays for that. People only pay for stuff where they have a vested interest in the conclusion. There's a product to be sold or there's uh, sort of power involved or something like that. And that is undeniable. And I realized one of the problems is, is that scientists and science itself have become immersed with politics and business. And people really struggle to trust politics and business these days because we've been really badly fucked by them since I was younger. You know, it used to be, uh, you know, I was remembering the start of the movie Anger Man and it talks about how it was back in a time where people believed everything they saw on the news. And I was like, I remember that time. I was a kid. But I remember if something was on the news, we believed it. There was no skepticism because they didn't lie. Right? They, like, they were journalists back then. Sure, it was always a little bit hyped up or whatever, but it wasn't what it is today, which is like sensational fucking fiction. You know, I, I, I can't even watch news or, or anything anymore because I don't, I don't know what they're their motive or agenda is all I know is I've lost trust in them a long time ago. If I want information, I go directly to science journals and websites. Now I, don't, I cut out the middleman because I can't trust the reporters. And I thought, well, if me, a very sort of skeptical advocate of rationalism is mistrustful of media and business and politicians. Imagine somebody who's already say superstitious or already like at quite a distance from science and rationality. I was like, how is it the people won't believe scientists who have gathered together in the hundreds of thousands to come to an agreement, but they'll believe one dude on YouTube with no qualifications, no reason to even be talking about the subject, simply because he's charismatic. And how prolific this is. There are people I know and trust. No, sorry. There are people I know and respect who choose the YouTube guy over all the scientists. And the problem is, it's because the scientists are holding hands with the politicians and the businessmen. The scientists have no choice. The scientists are broke. They've got to get their money from somewhere. 
The thing is, though, they're not actually that corrupt. Politicians and businesses may be. But somebody doesn't go to school for eight years knowing they're going to get paid a pittance for anything less than passion to do to find the truth. There are some corrupt scientists, and ironically, they're on the other side. Like that Andrew whatever who put out that anti-vax study that says vaccines cause autism. That was a corrupt study. It's been debunked fully. It was bullshit. He made it up. It was sensational. He's a corrupt scientist. All the ones that say vaccines are relatively safe, they're actually the ones that are above board because you can investigate them and check them out and they've, they're fucking clean. What I think really happened, what, what climate change kicked off was fear of extinction. What we had was scientists saying, look, this isn't like a distant time in the future now. We're all going to fucking die unless we make significant behavioral sacrifices. And I think what the scientists maybe failed to take into account is the human fear of death. People really don't want to admit that the human race could go extinct, which is a funny thing to me because I'm like, of course we're going to go extinct. I don't know when, but think about it this way. There's been life on this planet for about 4.6 billion years. Human beings, Homo sapiens, have been around for about 200,000 years as Homo sapiens, um, about a million or two million years as a great ape that then sort of diverged, according to evolutionary science. So we've been here in the blink of an eye, and, and in terms of how long life's been on this planet, one person, I think it was um, Neil deGrasse Tyson, said, if, if the, the entirety of life on this planet is one year, Humans showed up at 11.59 p.m. on December the 31st, right? We're right at the end. We're in the last hour of the year that we've showed up. And we're almost dead already. We are really bad at this, human beings. You know, for, for, for an animal to survive without having to evolve, like the very few that have, say, sharks, for example, they have to maintain this equilibrium with their environment. They basically have to stay still, like stay up to date, but never go above and beyond what they, their bear needs and to essentially survive. That's what sharks have done. Some other things, maybe ants. Human beings aren't even close. We're on the other end of this spectrum. We consume like a virus. The population has doubled in my lifetime. We went from 3.5 billion to almost 8 in the time that I've been on this planet, we're really bad at this equilibrium thing. Even if you don't believe all the climate scientists, surely you believe the facts around the population growth. That is not sustainable. So the idea that this species that's really, really bad at maintaining equilibrium is less likely to go extinct than every other species that's gone extinct that were even better than us at maintaining equilibrium you know, 99.9% .9 of all species have gone extinct and they weren't fucking up the planet like we were. It is some sort of massive leap of faith to think that we're somehow going to make it. We've been here in the last hour and we're already almost dead. But people don't want to accept that. It's weird because even if the human race goes extinct, you're not going to be around to see it. 
So I don't know what you're afraid of. Your lineage ending, the history of the human race being lost to the darkness of unconsciousness, or why would you be afraid of that? You're not going to be around to suffer anything. Yet people are. People are deathly afraid of extinction. So when all the scientists say, look, two plus two equals four, we're about to be extinct. Everybody goes, fuck the scientists, because they don't want to admit that we're going to go extinct. Everybody was fine with climate science 30 years ago when it wasn't about extinction. It was just like, oh, we're going to hurt some animals. Let's, let's clean things up. And people are like, okay, I'll put some shit in the bin and we'll put catalytic converters or whatever in our cars, you know, and I'll, I'll try to use less plastic. Everyone was cool with that. And so it was like, oh, actually, uh, things have escalated. We're going to die. And then it was like, nah, fuck you. I'm going to go to YouTube and look for a guy who says that I can keep driving a fucking diesel Hummer, you know? So I think I'm starting to build an understanding of why the kind of cult of anti-science is gripping people. There's also a philosophical um, truism. I don't know where this comes from. I don't know who to quote here. But it says, you know, hard times create strong people. Strong people create good times. Good times create weak people. Weak people create hard times. That's the phase we're in. You think of the generation before us, people born in 1900. They saw millions of people killed in wars. They went through a Great Depression crash in the stock market. The Spanish flu fucking wiped everybody out. The Vietnam War, Korean War. They saw hardship and that made them hard as fuck. My granddad was a hard cunt. Like he came back from the war after killing people in planes to start his own farm and become one of the like leading horse breeders, trainer guys in the country. Like he was just unfazed, no trauma or nothing, just fucking smashed it. You know, I can't think of a single teenager, you know, because that's how old he was when he went off to war. I can't think of a single teenager I know now that could hack it. They're just too too soft, too fragile. And that's not their fault. But our, our grandparents created such good times for us that we're the fragile ones. And the fragile weak ones are fucking it up. We're making hard times. Um, so that's what I think's happening. I don't have any major insights as to what to do about it, except the wheel will turn. The only optimism I have is hard times create strong people. I do believe some strong people are going to come out of this. Maybe they already are coming out of this. I hope they are. I think times need to get a bit harder first. I think we need to see some real death from climate change before people start getting tougher. We need to see like mass loss of life before people hit that crisis point. You know, the, the abstract numbers of COVID, people just saying, oh, it's only 1%. So like 1% is millions of people. Millions of people are dying. But people are like, oh, it's just 1%. It has no feeling for them. People are not like, holy shit, a million people is a lot. It's a lot extra. A million people would have been alive if it wasn't for this one virus. People don't really kind of wrap their heads around that. And of course, the anti-science crew don't even believe it. They're saying, no, people are making stuff up. Those people on respirators, they just got, you know, they just got fucking chicken box or something. This is bullshit. Right? Those respirators aren't real. It's Area 51. Who knows what the fuck they're thinking, right? So it hasn't been big enough. There hasn't been a big enough chunk of the poor of the population killed 
where like everybody's had someone in their family die. You know, that's how big it needs to get where you're like, you know, 60% of my family just died. You know, that's where World War II actually, people took that seriously because they everybody knew someone personally who had died in the war. Until it gets that hard, I think the anti-science movement is going to be really strong because everyone's just really comfortable and easy and they just don't believe that things can be bad. It's been too long. Many of the people in the anti-science movement were born after the hardest of times. You know, like me, if you're born in the 80s onwards, nothing bad's happened, right? The 60s was like the last thing. You know, civil rights and all that kind of stuff was happening around then. And then since then, we've just been cruising. People are like picking at problems now. You know, there isn't enough bathrooms for all the genders. <sighs> Jesus Christ. Aren't we suffering? You know? Fucking <laughs> hell. What happened to like, oh, my six brothers all died in war this week. You know, we don't have real problems now, but human suffering, of course, is relative. So whatever problems we have, we think they're big. Moving on. Lucy... My wife's had a lot of struggles this year, pregnancy being the main one. People don't tell you how bad pregnancy is. It's bad. You get like two months in the middle where it's not, but the beginning and the end are fucking awful. The beginning is all nausea, staying in bed, can't eat anything other than crackers without wanting to biff. And the end is can't walk, constantly tired, need to sleep all the time, emotional mood swings, starving, can't eat shit. It's, it's a nightmare. On top of that, I won't go into details because they're personal and private, but Lucy was having some issues with some other people. And I noticed this ironic thing. I was struggling with Lucy because she was people-pleasing with other people. And my response to that, to her emotional distress that comes from people-pleasing, as it always does, was to try and people-please her. So we got into this kind of loop my frustration with her people pleasing led me to try and fix things. Like I'd try and fight her battles for her or give her advice and tell her what to do to deal with these other people that were causing her emotional hardship, even though they weren't really causing it. Her people pleasing was putting herself in a position to get hurt. And uh, then I got really angry at myself because I'm like, here I am, the guy who like coaches everyone about people pleasing and I'm fucking doing it again. Right? And I feel like compelled to do it. I feel like unable to stop it. It felt like a drug relapse almost for me, you know, like I'm an addict who's been clean for 10 years and is running all the meetings. And then I've been like, started like having a few lines here and there, you know, it felt like that. I was really frustrated with myself. And of course, the frustration with myself just compounded all the issues. It didn't help anything. So I was just beating myself up on top of all the uh, emotional kind of pain I was already in. What it finally led to is I was getting a therapist. I've always kind of had some hesitancy about therapy, um, mostly because I had so many coaching clients come to me saying, oh my God, I had three years of therapy and one session of coaching with you did more for me than those three years. And I don't mean like that to brag. I mean, God, is therapy really that unhelpful that a single coaching session is better than three years worth of therapy? So there's some people obviously had therapists who were quite happy to keep their people on a string, keep them going without solving anything, um, which really goes, goes against my ethics and my morals as a coach. I'm always like, I want to get people to the point where they quit coaching because things are going well. Anyway, finally got over that hump. We got a therapist, this awesome guy, Steve Taylor, who's based in New Zealand, 
um, Relationships Matters, I think is the name of his company, is worth looking up. And he just really helped us with this. He helped challenge her about what she's doing and challenge me about what I'm doing. And I realized I'm so glad that we got this because we got therapy before we needed it. By the time most couples go to therapy, it's too late. The damage has been done. I went there as soon as I felt like I was not handling this well on my own. It wasn't that we weren't even having relationship problems. It's not like we weren't even having arguments or anything. I was just frustrated with myself for being controlling and fixing. Um, but yeah, it felt like a preventative measure. It's like eating salads before you get fat, you know, felt really good. So I, I highly recommend it to people. If you're in a relationship and you're starting to get frustrated or resentful towards your partner, don't wait until it becomes a big deal. Get support with it straight away. You know, nip it in the bud early so that you don't get divorced in 10 years. You know, that was a random thing. Another one, another experience I want to share with you. I'm going to jump all over the place. None of these things segue well into each other. So don't worry about that. Uh, we, when we're coming back from New Zealand to the Czech Republic, we're on this like emergency flight organized by the government for Czech people. And it was fucking packed, right? All economy class packed. And Lucy is a few months pregnant and sick as a dog. She's just super uncomfortable. And for the first leg of the flight, we're in the very back of the plane of economy. You know, that's just the worst. It's the shittiest place. And Lucy was just suffering majorly. And then we had a stopover. And Lucy was just at the end of her tether. And she's like, just go ask for business class. Get us an upgrade. Just try. And I was kind of like embarrassed and shy. You know, it's, it's, it's uh, one of my sort of weaknesses is asking for stuff that I don't deserve for free. You know, I find that really hard to do. But I took it as a challenge. I'm like, well, I'm going to man up and do what's right for my family. Sometimes I'm going to have to do uncomfortable, embarrassing things to like get the best for my crew, you know? So I thought this is a good little test. So I went and I kind of begged and pleaded and asked to get bumped up to business. And they told us, well, it's been reserved for the crew and people who are like at high risk and all that. I'm like, well, she's pregnant. She is high risk. Went back and forth, back and forth. And then they gave it to us free fucking upgrade to business class and i've got to tell you it's first time ever i've been in business class it is way better up there holy shit is it better up there i don't know if this is the case for all planes all companies but it is it's how planes should be you can lie down you got this whole space to yourself they serve you quickly they treat you well it's not like that fucking zoo at the back you know, which I've been on too many times. So the lesson there was any any of those passengers, there were plenty of other passengers in the economy who had, I'd say, an equally legitimate case to get bumped up to business. I mean, ours wasn't that legitimate. Lucy was a bit pregnant and uncomfortable. It's, it's not an emergency. It's certainly not like a requirement for extra like privileges. So there would have been other people who maybe somebody had bad headaches or somebody was too tall for their seat or something. There would have been people who had like an almost legitimate claim. None of them asked. None of them went for it. I thought, this is, I've seen this before. This isn't just here and now. This is everywhere. There's so many things that you could have if you asked for them, but nobody asked because they're embarrassed and shy and uncomfortable. And so nobody gets them. I just want to put it out there. You know, there's people don't go for what they want enough. 
Lucy, that's one of the strengths that I love about her. She's shameless in the few areas where I'm not. There's another time she was really sick when we were traveling from Thailand and we were had to wait in a you know, big queue to go through customs and the queue was so massive. We're like, we're definitely going to miss this flight. It was like a last minute thing. I won't give you the whole backstory, but we knew we we're going to miss this flight with the size of the queue. Lucy just goes under the fucking velvet rope, dragging me with her, walks all the way to the front of the queue. You can hear the rise of like groans coming up from everyone watching us or the disappointment and anger behind us as we just cut in front of like literally a thousand people. She went right to the front people in the line and said, look, I'm really sick and we're going to miss our flight. Can I go in front of you? And they're like, yeah, <laughs> you know, because what do they care about everybody else? It's only them that's missing out on one spot. And I just remember there's this dude about three people back. He was about the only one who was brave enough to like really voice his complaint about us doing this. He was like, well, you know what? I've already missed my flight. I've been here for three hours. And I can't remember what Lucy said exactly. And I can't remember if she said it just to me or to him directly, but I was like, well, you should have tried this. I was like, yeah, gotcha. If you really were going to miss your flight, you should have tried to jump to the front, but you're too scared. You can't complain that my girl wasn't right she got permission she didn't get permission from 999 people but she got it from the one that matters she she fought for what she needed in a desperate time that's not saying you should be inconsiderate and just try and jump the cues whenever you feel like it but every situation is different you've got to play it to the nuance in this situation we really need to get on that flight and she was really sick so that's one of the things i've seen with lucy she, she's kind of personal send back for, back food if, it, if it's not cooked properly and I'm the kind of person who just eat it you know she shows me that we just don't get what we're entitled to most of the time because we're too scared to ask and we're too uh, ashamed of what we want there's a lot of people living mediocre lives for this particular reason you could be living business class if you just had the balls to ask for it and that's a metaphor so I don't want to go on too long today, so I might skip a few of the more uh, minor things on my list. Um, working out. I managed to get some consistency for the first time in my life, working out every single day, every weekday anyway. I finally found the consistency secrets. For a start, I changed why I was doing it. I used to do it essentially for some sort of quantitative result, either aesthetic to look a certain way, muscles to be a certain size or definition or something like that or to be able to lift a certain amount like do a certain number of pull-ups or something like that that approach has never been consistent for me i've always had weeks where i drop off or my priorities change and i can't quite keep it up and then you get like lethargic as you lose your momentum and stuff but this year i kind of nailed it and i want to share this in case it applies for people for start, I changed why, and one of the big whys was I went for mobility. So mobility, flexibility is like how much you can stretch kind of thing. If you use resistant force, mobility is how much you can do it on your own. And what I came to realize as I'm going to be a dad is that I need to be really more mobile. I need to be able to squat down and twist around and do weird lunges and lifts and stuff to be able to handle a baby and play with a kid, you know, and I'm getting older. I don't have all that stuff naturally, not that I ever did. But I certainly don't anymore. I'm quite stiff and inflexible. And, you know, there's certain things if I bend the wrong way, I'm fucking going to be lying down for a week. And I was like, I can't have that. So I hired, he's actually an ex-coaching client of mine, but he's a physio 
therapist type dude hired him to write me a program i was like mobility for an old dad you know and he did and so now i was working on it for a long-term sustainable functional body to be a good dad I wasn't working on it to impress anybody. I wasn't trying to be super strong or anything, even though strength is built into this quite quite a lot, but it's functional strength. It's not strength to list, lift a dumbbell, which I never actually have to do in real life. It's strength to like get up on one leg while holding a baby and not losing um, you know, grip on her and lifting a bag full of her shit while going downstairs. It's real life strength that I needed. So that change of approach like mobility for sustainable like real life function combined with minimum obligation now the minimum obligation is a warm-up i'd like a, i've got a warm-up routine that's the same every day and then the workouts themselves change as i see fit but the the warm-up is really easy it doesn't matter what mood i'm in or how tired i'm in i can always handle the warm-up so my goal was I only have to do the warm-up. If I do any more after that, it's an optional choice. I'm allowed to quit after the warm-up. I've always known that being allowed to quit is actually a motivational factor that most people don't know about. They think if you're allowed to quit, then you will. It's actually if you're not allowed to quit, that you will. When you're allowed to quit, you go, well, I'll keep going until I actually want to then. And you usually end up doing the whole lot. So those two combined led to such a consistency with working out that uh, physically I was like in the best shape ever. Now that's kind of gone to shit over the last month since I've had a kid, but I plan to fix that. So I'll give the exception there because I just haven't, our kid's quite high maintenance. So I've had to really cut back, unfortunately, but I'm going to fix that within the next week. I've already started fixing it. So anyway, just want to throw that out there. Um, what else? There's a few key things. One is a um, coming back to what I was saying before about the anti-science people. Things like that have bothered me a lot in the past. Anti-science people, bullying, racism, people just being cunts, you know. It's a thing that's consumed a lot of my bandwidth over the years, you know, and, and social media is one of the ways in which it kind of like captures you, you can't get away from it. You're just scrolling through, having a look at your friend's photos and then some dick says something and you're like, ah, oh, for fuck's sake. And you just feel drawn into it, this fight. And like, I don't have a, I don't have a problem with people being religious. My wife is Catholic. Um, I've got plenty of religious friends. But fundamental religion bothers me as a concept, you know, uh, my wife's had to deal with a lot of shame issues because of Catholic culture and so on. I hate all that. And it really bothers me. It winds me up. And I get into these like debates and arguments with people about you know, the fallacies of religion and how sort of toxic the culture can be in religious groups and so on. This kind of stuff, anti-science, religion, bullying. I can't believe the number of hours of my life it's consumed as I just impotently rant against it making no impact on it, doing no good, venting but not even feeling relieved afterwards, more like just stirring the, the pot and getting myself more angry. Anyway, it's always bothered me because I'm like, I care about something I can do nothing about and it doesn't matter anyway, why can't I stop caring about it? Why can't I just go find something better to do with my time? 
And I saw this quote, or at least a quote attributed to Keanu Reeves, who's like one of my role models. I fucking love this guy. As far as I'm concerned, he is an absolute model of someone who's figured out how to live right. I can't remember. I won't bother trying to actually quote him. I'll just paraphrase it. But he said something like, I've learned to let go of trying to convince people to believe something I believe and to just let them believe whatever they want. So if someone comes up to me and says two plus two equals five, two plus two equals five, I'm like, fine, whatever you want. Now I was just looking at that. That's not the exact wording, but that's the gist. I was like, dad, that's how I want to be. When I see somebody saying like the COVID vaccine is going to fucking inject a microchip and in from Bill Gates, even though I post all my shit on Facebook anyway, I'm really worried about my privacy. You know, when I see something like that, I just want to be like, okay, sure. That's fine. You enjoy. Hope it works out for you. And actually mean it, you know, not be facetious or resentful, but just be like, whatever, dude, people are people. Just leave you to it. If you're not harming anyone directly that I can do something about, then I just got to let it go. And the funny thing is, even if you're thinking about, well, I've got to get involved to protect people, like a lot of the atheist movements, you know, religion is directly. directly linked with a lot of very sort of harmful behavior, the death penalty, war, so on. But the funny thing is actually railing against it and fighting against it usually just makes the fundamental people dig their heels in even deeper. So if I say anti-religious things, I don't convert anyone to atheism. I just make the religious people hate me. Right? I, don't, I don't solve any problems doing that. In fact, is if I just live and let live, people tend to become moderate on their own. See, my wife and I, we don't fight about religion. Just the other day, she was like, we we're walking. She's like, you know, I haven't been to church since Chloe was born. I'm like, well, I'll wait with, you know, I'll wait outside while you go and introduce Chloe to God. I don't believe in God, but I know she does. And there's really no problem with that. So go, I'll chill out and watch the lights. And she comes out of the church. I'm like, because of that, She hasn't become, well, I'm not saying because of that, but she has not become some sort of fundamental religious nutbag, right? And I don't fight against her. And we just have this kind of moderate thing going where she believes what she believes and I just let her do it and no harm comes of it. And we've come to a decision that like Chloe will be allowed to decide for herself what she believes in. Neither of us will try and influence her either way. We'll just live our lives and she can choose. You know, if I had been really hard up about it, it might have become a big fight where she's like, no, Chloe has to be Catholic. And I'm like, no, she has to be atheist. But because we're not fighting about it, we're just like, ah, you, you be you and I'll do me and let's just let live. It's actually worked out to be quite sort of moderate and calm. And I think this is what I want to really embody next year. This is the thing I want to figure out is how do I just let it go? You know, the whole human race is going to go extinct anyway. Why do I bother with shit that isn't like the fight that I want to have? I want to help people live with integrity. I want to help people be more confident. What they believe in actually doesn't have a huge amount to do with that. I have people who are clients of mine who are religious or anti-vax or whatever, and it doesn't actually get in the way of me helping them live with integrity. You know, Just the other day, I was on a podcast call with a guy who's really pro-Trump, and I'm quite anti if I am anything about Trump. And and he's also quite like anti-mask. He's really anti-COVID. It's, you know, the Trump crew tend to be quite 
kind of aligned in all the other beliefs as well. And I was actually giving him support on being honest about his views. I wasn't trying to change them. I was like, well, if that's what you believe, fucking say it proudly. Don't hold back. I've noticed that he has been. I'm not saying it's because of me, but he's very vocal about his support for Trump and his uh, disbelief and mask wearing and all that. And I'm like, fine, just let him be. I can still be his friend. This doesn't have to be a war between us. Why do I give a fuck? Let him do whatever he wants. Let everybody do whatever they want. That's what I want to get to. Because I think it's actually the most likely approach to bring about positive change for those who are doing harmful things. Whereas me rallying against them just hardens their position and makes them less likely to change and makes them more likely to recruit others and so on. It's like in the comment section of YouTube, if you respond, it gets worse. If you leave it, it just dies. I've learned in my, my YouTube comments where I occasionally get some pretty rough fucking insults and shit. If I just ignore them, nothing happens to my life. If I get into it, I lose an hour arguing with some stranger on the internet. Why? Some stranger who shouldn't be watching my video in the first place because he doesn't even like me. We're both wasting our time. I really got to stop doing that. Uh, on that note, I've seen something, you know, I'm changing topic now. Seeing something that uh, is quite inspiring for me. It's mostly I'm seeing it in the Brojo community, but it's an enthusiasm for honesty and integrity. I like what I'm seeing. I feel like I'm, in, I'm, I'm riding a wave at just the right time. You know, my, my advocacy for full honesty, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, people wouldn't have swallowed that. But now, people seem to be really into it. People seem to intuitively understand that the suffering they have in their life is somehow related to their dishonesty. And they're keen to do something about that. And I don't mean everybody, but I'm seeing a lot of people do that. The word authenticity is coming up everywhere these days. It didn't used to come up that much. I'm seeing top brands, you know, people in my industry switching to being more honest and vulnerable. We're seeing people like, you know, high profile people say Jim Carrey, Will Smith, that Julian Blunt guy who was in so much trouble a few years back. All of them suddenly switched to being like really honest. Neil Strauss, the guy who wrote The Game, you should read his latest book, uh, The Truth, about relationships. Man, he's changed his tune on honesty. You know, he used to be all like, deceive, do whatever you need to do to get what you want. And now he's like, let go of everything, to be honest. You know, he's made a big turnaround and he's having an impact on people. And I'm just seeing this wave of people going, you know what, I'm going to try this honesty thing. They're not just talking about it. There's no virtue signaling. Not in the Brojo community anyway. People are actually going out there and getting into confrontations and saying uncomfortable stuff and bringing up shit with their family. They're doing it. I fucking love it. Because for the longest time, I felt like the only one. It's not a brag. It's just, you know, I was the only person I knew being this honest. And it was lonely feeling. And I knew, on one hand, I knew it was the right thing to do. But on the other hand, like, I guess I'm human. I wanted some social proof. Like, surely I'm not the only fucking one. Because that's the definition of lunacy is that nobody else shares your belief, you know. And I'm like, I seem to have a much higher quality of life since I've started being honest. But if I'm the only one doing it, am I delusional? Am I fucking mental here? Because I don't see anybody else coming even close. Now I am. So I love about the Brojo community. It's like somebody will post in our Facebook group something. 
And half of the responses at least are just like, just be honest, just say what you really think, just tell her what you feel. Like that's the theme now. Like you almost don't need to post because you know what advice you're going to get about it. And I love that. And I love that people are not just talking about it. They're not just signaling. They're doing it. In the Trump world, where dishonesty is applauded and celebrated by certain people, where we can't trust anyone anymore because everyone's just so fucking full of shit, I think now's the time. Now's the, the age of integrity, perhaps, where it's finally, we finally live in a global society where you can actually be honest without getting murdered. You know, it wasn't always the case for the human race. I couldn't have got away with this shit 100 years ago, you know? They would have fucking, you know, 100, 200 years ago. If you spoke your mind all the time, you would have just been like burnt as a witch or something. Like you just didn't have a shot at doing this. But now physically you are safe to do this. I don't care what anyone says about, oh, you know, you're going to get cancel culture or whatever. Well, if you're shameless, you'll survive that just fine. Some people complain like, oh, I'm getting kicked off Facebook. There's too much censorship or kicked off YouTube. I'm like, well, they're private companies and do whatever the fuck they want. You don't have an entitlement to be on a platform, but that doesn't have to stop you speaking your mind. Get banned. Good. It means you had integrity. I haven't been banned from any particular channel. Um, no, I've been censored now and then, but I don't complain about it. That's their prerogative. They can censor me if they want. It's their fucking business, right? They don't owe me shit. They can censor everyone if they want. They could have just one theme of video and censor everything else, and nobody really has the right to say anything about it. They're not a publicly owned fucking franchise or something. But I don't complain about it because the point is not for me to be heard. It's for me to speak. People don't listen. That's fine. The freedom of speech is not the freedom to be listened to. Right? Once you let go of the fact that you know people have to care what you have to say, they don't. You just got to say it for your own sake. Then you'll be more honest. So yeah, seeing a lot of Brojo members actively trying it out and getting the results that I suspected they would get. You know, I've been coaching people for a long time and I've seen consistency in terms of quality of life going up as their integrity goes up. The more honest you are, the better your life gets after an initial difficult phase of transition. And I'm seeing a lot of people do that without me, without my help. You know, it's slower. I don't mind fucking taking credit for the speed that my coaching brings to people's changes, but people are actually improving their relationships, their careers, everything with more honesty. It's awesome to see. All right. What else is there? A few more things. Chloe. So I'm a dad now, first time. I love it and it's fucking hard. Okay. I have a couple of friends who've been trying to have a kid for a long time and something's stopping it. There's actually some recent scientific studies come out that show that if you're stressed, uh, you essentially become infertile. And there are a lot of people who try so hard to have a baby and get so stressed about it that they actually cannot have one. I think that's pretty common. I feel for them and I want it to work out for them, but I also want everyone to have a much more honest understanding of what having a kid really entails. All the girls I talk to when they say they want a baby, what they mean is they have this vision of them holding themselves, a cute little monkey looking creature and going, oh, isn't that nice? That's like 5% of it. Okay, that does happen. That, that cuddle moment's there. But the rest, man. 
I've already spoken about the pregnancy today. It's awful. Pregnancy is fucking awful. There are some exceptions. There are, I know one girl from school who says she feels more healthy during pregnancy than not. She is very much an exception. Every other girl I talk to her, I'm like, come on, be honest. Stop pretending. Nobody's watching. You're not on Facebook now. And they're all like, fuck, it's fucking awful. I don't know how I put myself through it. It's fucking sucked. And their husbands, if they're supportive guys, like, yeah, it's tough work. You're like, it's like she's got depression or fucking bipolar or something. Plus, I have to do ex everything extra. For the whole, for the couple, for the whole unit, it's really a struggle, especially when you have your second kid from the looks of things, because now you're trying to have all that plus a kid running around and demands so much attention. Kids are really high maintenance, you know. Give you an impression like Chloe's pretty good. She sleeps through most of the night. She'll sleep for like three hours and then go. Uh, apparently, we're quite lucky. But during the day, she requires almost constant care. She might have 15, 20 minute naps where you don't have to be there. But the rest of the time, she's really colicky. So unless you want to hear her screaming all day, you've got to be like there, comforting, feeding, changing, watching. You, you don't have time to really do any major task, like prepare a meal or some work activity that takes more than an hour or something. You just don't have the time to like, consistently do something without interruption the people i know who really want to have a kid they actually currently live lives that where they'd have to sacrifice a lot they they live a do whatever the fuck you want all the time life i'm like that's not a parenting life parenting life is you get to squeeze what you want to do into these tiny pockets of opportunity and the rest of the time is just heavy responsibility without a break now some people have more support than lucy and i have uh, in terms of like family members who can step in and stuff. But with COVID and with the difficulties that her family's had around the stroke and stuff, we're kind of on our own. And I'll tell you, boy, whew, it's hard fucking work. You know, I like the hard work, to be fair. I like challenge. One thing I figured out about my Scottish ancestry is I'm built for endurance. Like I'm not particularly fast or strong or smart, but I can endure. Like I can do hard work for very long periods of time without kind of giving up it's like my main strength and it's so fucking well suited to fatherhood because it's just you know when you're functioning on four hours sleep a day and you've got to require like mindful care of this very special little human being that's endurance and i'm glad i waited till now um if i'd had a kid 10 years ago i would have been a fucking mess i don't know how people have kids in their early 20s and shit where you don't even know who you are like I've done a lot of work on myself. I right now feel right, just about the right time to have a kid where I'm not going to worry about downloading all sorts of baggage onto her or like freaking out and becoming like an alcoholic or bailing on the family or getting a, becoming a distant workaholic dad who doesn't have any time for kids. I've gotten past all the risk of that. And now I'm going to be the fucking cool dad who's there for their kid all the time, you know, and can handle conflict and that's patient and, knows how to like role model without forcing her to be something and won't, you know, I've learned through coaching people, the kind of things parents do to kids that fuck them up without even meaning to the kind of trauma that comes from bullying and criticism and emotional fucking incest. And, you know, all the stuff that where you just download your fucking crazy shit onto your kid and they end up fucked up and having to deal with it. I'm just not going to do that. I mean, I'll make mistakes, but 
I couldn't have had a kid earlier. I wasn't ready. And I know most people do have their kids earlier and they're not ready psychologically. So if you haven't had a kid yet, let me just put it out there. If you can wait until you got your shit sorted, I think it's going to be way better for you and for the kid. But yeah, there, there are a lot of lies out there about parenthood and pregnancy that make it sound like more manageable than it is. It really is worth it if you really want a kid and, and you want to have a family and be a dad. It's totally worth having a kid. But it's not that worth it. It's not like, wow, amazing pleasure. It's more like fucking trying to stay awake the whole time while this thing screams at your ear and your wife's having mood swings and trying to sort out her cracked fucked up nipples from breastfeeding and somehow you've got to feed and provide for these people with no spare time, not even time to work. It's that as well. Okay, it's emotionally difficult. Draining as fuck emotionally. Because you're not just taking care of the kid, you're taking care of your partner too. The recovery from pregnancy, from birth, is horrendous. Even if they have like a nice easy C-section or something, the emotional recovery for them is very hard. Some women are never the same again, right? You might end up with a partner who's significantly permanently changed emotionally in some way. You know, wilder mood swings perhaps, or a harder view on life, or more pessimistic, right? Permanent changes both physically and mentally after giving birth and you've got to be the strong one during this like it's your turn after the birth for the next probably three months at least you have to be the one that's strong while everybody else is a mess can you do that if not don't have a fucking kid because you're not ready so that's my thoughts on that as arrogant as it probably sounds um i had a book launch i won't go into that too much i've talked about that to death um but this time I focused much more on serving people than getting on a bestseller list. I took my time. The last book, Nothing to Lose, I'm going to rewrite because I rushed it. I was focused more on selling copies. Not more, but I was focused too much on selling it and not enough on creating a quality book. This time I didn't score anywhere in the bestseller list on Amazon, but I've written a fucking cracking book. It is, it's fucking good. Uh, I have no doubt about that. It's the best shit I've ever put out. And it's like, every question I've had about honesty is answered by the book. All your worries, like, can you be too honest? What if people react badly? How do I even know what honesty is? All those questions are all answered by the book. No question I've heard is not covered. So, But I didn't get on the bestseller list. I didn't sell a whole bunch of them. I'm not trying to convince people anymore. I'm just letting them decide for themselves giving them the best thing that I could in the best possible way that I could. A couple of final points to wrap up. One thing COVID taught us about employment is that most people don't need to go into an office. And this just highlighted something that I've suspected ever since I became an entrepreneur. Modern employment is just fancy slavery. It really is. I was talking to someone the other day and I was like, Imagine if someone came to you and they said, you know, oh, my job's really hard, but at least uh, I get free food and accommodation, you know, and I can sing while I work. Well, I think that sounds good. I'm like, yeah, what's your job? Oh, I'm a slave. People are slaves these days. And the thing is, what I guess what capitalists figured out at the end of like, you know, with the the rights movements and everything, the abolishment of slavery, and then later on, like, the kind of 
uh, almost communists rising to, to get people like into unions and get them better pay and better conditions. What people thought is, oh, slavery's finished. It hasn't. It's adapted. It's smarter now. See, they don't tell you that you can't leave your job because they don't need to. You're going to stay on your own. They'll give you a legal contract that makes it scary and difficult and a hassle to leave your job, but they know that your fear of financial insecurity is as good as a chain around your neck. See, the modern day slave owners and capitalists know that they don't need to force you because they'll just scare you into forcing yourself. I want you to think about how ludicrous it is to work a nine to five, five days a week. The proportion of your life dedicated to somebody else's success. I mean, you think, oh, I'm putting food on the table. Whose table? Because you're not putting much food on yours. You're putting a lot on somebody else's. There's somebody else who's really benefiting on the sweat of your back. And I'm not saying that capitalism isn't bad. What I'm saying is you're a slave and that doesn't have to be that way. You can escape. And I'm going to just put aside all modesty here because I want to help you. I'm no longer a slave. I was a slave most of my career. There was one place I was working 12 hours a day, six days a week. Fucking awful. With an hour commute either way. So 14 hours taken up by work. And I was getting $13 an hour. That's slavery. Okay. I could barely afford to go to work. Whatever money I had, I didn't even have the time or energy to spend on anything good for myself. I was in a holding pattern. And there are plenty of people I know who are in a job that they would not be in if they won the lottery. That's how much they hate it. They're only really doing it for the money. And they tell themselves they got a good boss or they like their work or it's close to home or whatever bullshit. But I'm like, you just sound like the slave saying, oh, at least I get to sing while I pick cotton. These days I work about five hours a day doing what I feel like doing. And through a combination of probably good business sense, but also frugality and clever financial choices, I'm able to support my family. Lucy works for me. She doesn't have a job without neglecting them. So I'm there with them. I'm spending a lot of time with Chloe at the moment, bonding with her. I get good quality time with my wife. I get time for myself. And I put food on the table, including investing and saving money. You know, I'm smart with money now. I, I educated myself over the last two years. There's a book called I Will Teach You To Be Rich read it it'll give you everything you need to know about money so you can keep more of it and work less i read the four hour work week to figure out how to do less hours with the same output but most importantly i started my own business that has multiple income streams so that nobody owns me if you shut me down on youtube i got a podcast if you shut me down on podcast i got facebook if you shut me down on facebook i've got an email list which you can't shut down i have coaching one-to-one -one clients i have online programs i have group coaching if i lose any one of these things i can still survive and maintain and plus i've got emergency savings and investments that is freedom okay i don't make a lot of money i'm not super rich right i'm still uh i'm still in the proletariat but nobody owns me there's nobody who can fuck up my future with a small decision there's nobody who can make me redundant there's nobody who can wreck my financial security other than me.
I am not more talented than anybody watching or listening to this. You can do it too. The resources are there for you. I actually created a course on Brojo called Financial Freedom. If you email me, I'll give you access to that course for free. Fuck it. I'll let you know what I know so that you can escape your slavery. There is no need for anyone to be an employee. We could have an entire economic system set up on freelancing and consultancy where people hire themselves out for jobs if they have the balls to not need a contract guaranteeing an income because the contract doesn't guarantee you shit. Any company can still fire you no matter what the contract says. Any company can make you redundant. Any company can go under. You don't have any financial security. It's an illusion. So if you don't have it anyway, what's a different way of living? If you are a freelancer, a consultant, if you hide yourself out on a job-by-job basis, then nobody would ever own you and you wouldn't be a slave. You could do whatever hours you feel like doing. You could have some time with your family. Plus, you get to keep all the profits. You know, I used to I used to work a job where I was getting paid $35 an ounce. That's a decent amount. But I was thinking, how much is how much has been kept from this? You know? I know some people like uh, they're lawyers or something or tradesmen. You know, when I was uh when I was landscaping, I was being charged out at like $70 an hour and I was getting paid $15 an hour. My boss was keeping that 55 just for getting the job for us. I was like, okay, that's slavery. That's slavery. I'm getting subsistence level while he does nothing to keep everything. Now, he wasn't a bad guy, but that is technical definition of slavery. Final thoughts. 2020. For me personally, the biggest value I need to work on next year is acceptance. It's my weakest value is being able to tolerate something that either I can't change or isn't worth my attention. To be able to not care without getting nihilistic, without not caring about anything, but to only care about the things I can and should control and to stop trying to control everything else. Just let people be whatever they're going to be. Let situations be bad. Just adjust to them rather than trying to fix them. That's my challenge and that's my weakness. Uh, it's kind of, for me, it feels like the final frontier. If I can get that one sorted, it's really going to be not much suffering left in my life. The moment it's main source of any suffering I have. So my commitment is to work on that. I don't mean New Year's resolution. It's just a commitment for the rest of my life. I've identified the squeaky wheel in my psyche. And that is my inability to accept things that I can't change because I'm under the illusion that I can change them. What's yours? Thanks for listening to me rant. Hopefully something in there was helpful for you. Mostly it was me just getting ideas off my chest. And I'll see you all next year. Cheers. This is Brojo Online. Masculinity, confidence, and integrity.